Hi, what the hell tech listeners? Um, I'm your host today, Paul Johnson. Um, this is the podcast where we uh, tackle some of the challenges, best ideas, best practice um, within the health and social care world. Today, I'm joined by uh, Big Ian Donaghy. Big Ian is a speaker, a doer. He works tirelessly to raise awareness of dementia and combat loneliness. He taught young people with learning difficulties for 20 years and spent the last 10 years in the world of care. In this episode, we're going to find out more about the amazing work Ian does and how we can help him raise awareness of such important topics. Uh, Outside of his work, Ian's married, has spent the last 32 years as the lead singer of uh, the band Huge, filling theatres all over the place. He's a huge sports fan, especially basketball, as his son plays for York. Um, Hi, Ian. Welcome to What the Health Tech. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today, Ian. Got a few questions for you, so I think we'll start with the obvious. Why Big Ian? Well, I'm a fraud, because I'm not Big Ian anymore. I'm some little geisha. I'm like some (laughs) sort of gymnast compared to what I used to be. I used to be 28 stone 8, a bouncer on North Street in Durham. Uh, £400, that is. £400. And it was my job to break up fights and prevent fights with my sense of humour. It wasn't using the fact that I was the size of a house. It was the fact that I was good with people and I would make them laugh and I would make them realise, do you know what, do we really want to do this? And so I always used my sense of humour to diffuse things and to distract. And it was a really good place to learn because the tough crowd is North Street in Durham in the late 1980s. And now I'm no longer 28 stone 8. I am a geisha like 16 stone 7. And so to be honest, when people see me as Big E and I walk in a room, nobody even turns and looks now, never mind gasps. I'm just a sort of tall bloke who looks a bit like Greg Davis or Dara Breen, unfortunately. Fantastic. I mean, I, I obviously the people things and communication is a big piece. So prior, you were in education? Yeah, I left uh, Dominant and then I went to, to university in York and trained to be a teacher. And I thought I'd have a, a leafy lane career teaching lovely kids in a lovely school and just do that and then retire and spend time in garden centres when I retire. And it never kind of worked out because nobody gave us a job uh, when I got my degree. I had a big black suit on. I walked into any interview and I was massive and I frightened people. I had a skinhead haircut. I had a northeast accent. And I looked like I could kill James Bond. And so <laughs> nobody gave me the job. One guy even said, you are the man for the job today, but we're not going to give you it because I don't think I could manage you if we disagreed. That was what I got in my feedback. And then I got my lecturer from college said to a school in York, We've got a guy here, most natural communicator, most natural teacher that we've ever had. Kids love him to bits and nobody's given him a job because they think he looks like bother. Get him in for a morning. So a special school in York got me in for a morning and I left eight years later. I got no interview. It was just come in and then the just <laughs> kept asking me to come back tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Kept giving me promotion, promotion, promotion. And then I taught there... Um, until I was headhunted to teach and work for the Home Office. 
where I taught unteachable kids, as they were deemed, and I went in and told them, I said, right, apparently you're unteachable. Do you fancy uh, proving people wrong? And so it was my job to be a positive male role model for these kids and keep them in school. And we had a great time. We got one school from 18 permanent exclusions in a year down to zero. And that was the same year that my hair went from brown to just for men brown. (laughs) Because honestly, it was so hard. But as you can see, you do those tough jobs, right? Special ed. Bouncer, home office, tough jobs. Can I be honest? I'm in a studio in Wakefield today recording a podcast. Believe me, I'm not getting call out the ground these days. <laughs> I cut me teeth early doors to do the nice stuff now. So so, so what, what kind of, I, I can see the kind of this segue coming from how you're working and helping people that are maybe deemed to, you know, require help or unhelpable as, as it was phrased. So the plunge into healthcare, 2012. Got headhunted. Right. I was speaking at a conference and I said, it's a bit of a bold move. At an education conference, I actually stood up and said, schools have got it all wrong. My son is going to do the same exams as my dad did in 1952. You know, 9-0 levels or GCSEs or whatever, you change the name, but it's pretty much the same thing. And I went, we're just hammering these round pegs into square holes all the time, and that's all wrong. And so this guy heard the stuff I was talking about, about how we should make education fit the, the kids themselves. And he says, have you ever considered taking these ideas into dementia care? And I went, no. He went, oh, man, this would be amazing. So he says, how much do you want? He says, because I want you. This isn't an interview. I want you. You tell me how much you want. So I gave him a figure. He went, yeah. Um, I'd just lost my mum. My mum had just died very quickly. And it, I was I was at a fork in the road and I thought, this has come along as a bit of a present. This is a completely new start at 39. And I thought, this has come along for, for a reason. Because some people are with you in your lives. They're either for, they're for a reason, a season or a lifetime. And this guy was here for a reason. And... I thought, yeah, I'll go for that. My CV is not going to disappear. So I jumped ship. I was going to be a head teacher. I was being fast-tracked to be a head teacher. And uh, it's been incredible. The time I've had since being 39, It's I've been so lucky. People I meet, the things I get to do, because people just let me do what I want to do. They say, have you got a great idea? Do it. And that's why the magic's happened, because there's no parrot on my shoulder. People give me complete freedom. I work for nobody. I work with everybody. And that is the difference. If you feel like you're owned by anybody, you cannot be creative. If you work with somebody, oh, you can make magic happen. Yeah, no, I'm, I've, yeah, I advocate that. I mean, it's something that's passionate to us at Radar Healthcare in terms of working with people rather mm. than being prescriptive. I mean, I, I've heard you, you speak um, on many occasions and uh, one, one of the kind of things that you've always said is you'll make people laugh, you'll make people cry, but you'll make people think. So that's a real challenge when, uh, and we had a conversation before this as to making sure people are engaged. I think from, from your perspective, can you think of something that you, you, almost the most emotional talk that you've given that really affected you or had an impact that you felt on, on the audience listening? 
Well, this is really fresh out the box, really. Um, I spoke at the NCF conference at Warwick the other week, and uh, it was the first time back in the room for all these managers who basically had been on desert islands for two years and had had to delve into depths of themselves that I think that, that none of them had signed up for. And it was amazing to see them in, in the room together. And so I gave this talk about, it was called, you don't get it. Because I don't think they do get it. Because their nose has been so tight against the painting for two years. They've been on a roller coaster. The, the things come in like Alton Towers, and then they've just set off and gone. And they've had no time to reflect. They've had no time to... It's like they've been in a car crash and not, not understood it. And so I gave this talk, and I told them just... Every morning, on your bedside table... There's something you can't see, but you need to grab. I said, you've got a medal that you can't see, but you need to put it on every day. I said, because if you're still getting up and you're still going to work, no matter how wrung out you are, you've got a 100% survival record. And they're still in the game. And I went, you need to celebrate that. And at the end of this talk, I did this song called Lift You Up, which is all about um, what care does. Beautiful song that one of my mates wrote at night to remember. And I made them all cry. And I made them all laugh. And I made them all, you know. One woman came up to me and she went, you've made me think about me. Now that's some review. So at the end, I thought, well, that's been an 11 out of 10. That couldn't have been better. Oh, that was amazing. So the room was totally moved. And then something happened that I never saw coming because I hold all the cards when I'm doing a talk, right? I decide on the feel in the room, nobody else. And then something happened. 180 people all got out of their seats, tears rolling down their faces, massive standing ovation. My eyes went as glassy as if I'd been watching a box set of DIY SOS and Long Lost Family, right? With a bit of repair shop thrown in. And I just thought, add on. I'll make you cry. And really, I had to hold it back because it was so emotional and it was so powerful. And what it was, it was just like an adrenaline hangover. And it was everybody suddenly realised, wow, how have we got through this? How are we still in the game? But we still are. And that is why all my mates say, oh, who are you talking to today? Who are you talking to today? You're, oh, you're always going about meeting really cool people. Because I meet really cool people. And that's why, and most speakers talk about them. You know, oh, look at my life. I've had a tough time. I've done this. Or look at this. This happened to me. You know, or I used to be, I went to prison and now I haven't. Give us a prize, right? Well, I've hurt nobody ever, right? And I've helped lots of people. And I like to celebrate and shine a torch on the achievements of the people in front of me and show them the person that everybody else sees, but they rarely do. And that's why I do it. No, it's powerful stuff. I think that that's a kind of natural link inside. I know something that you're immensely passionate about is loneliness. And I know you've got involved in various campaigns. Mm. I mean, you know, from your perspective, it'd be good, you know, do you experience that? You know, you whilst you're sharing and celebrating other people's experiences or helping them, sometimes you can neglect yourself. And then the second part is, you know, what, what, 
what is it you're doing in this space, you know, and raising awareness, you know, some of the amazing things, if you can share those. Right. Well, the thing is, I work by myself. I, it's me and a phone. I get to dip into other people's communities and then I get to dip out, which is quite nice. Um, but can I be right? Recently, I did four weeks where I was working on projects that was me and a MacBook, right, on my lap, right, with a lot of toast. And I just thought, I hadn't seen anybody for a while. I felt like doing a Tom Hanks thing and having a football with a with a face on it, you know. And I thought, goodness me, this isn't, this isn't, uh, this isn't very nice. But recently on Dragon's Den, Peter Jones had a guy on who made accessories for bikes. So you can turn a bike into an exercise bike in the house. And this bloke was there. And they all sat there on their thrones. And he says, right, so this business has made 300 grand. And what have you done with the money? He went, well, I haven't spent it. And he went, so what do you do with your week? And he went, well, I work three days a week in a bike shop. He went, oh, do you own the bike shop? He went, no, I just work there because they're short-staffed. And in, I work in the bike shop three days a week. He says, but you've made 300 grand in the last year out of this bike accessory event invented. And, he, and Peter Jones flippantly said, are you lonely or something? And this bloke turned round to this massive six foot six multi-millionaire and went, yeah. And suddenly he had to backpedal. And all, the, all of the dragons suddenly realised, wow, this is it. And loneliness is a pandemic that nobody's looking for a vaccine for. And it kills people. It kills people, does loneliness. And I'm writing a new book that's called Hello which is all about the most significant five letters in our lives because we control hello. We have little saying goodbye. And so I'm writing a book to combat loneliness that shows people, do you know the 7.54 billion people in this world? Why do you think you've got to stop? Like I'm 51. Why do I have to not have any more friends? A lot of people think, right, they're my friends. That's what I've got. You don't do the same with wallpaper. If, they, if you fancy you change a wallpaper, you change it. And so, you know, we need to get out this idea that when your mum was little, when you were little and your mum said, whatever you do, Arian, don't talk to strangers. Well, if you don't talk to strangers, I'm not here. My kids don't have shoes. Your kids don't have shoes, right? You know, we need to meet new people and we need to open up, up our world. So we've done lots of things. Uh, we do a thing called Dementia is a Team Game, which is a thing to highlight um, people who may live alone or people who care for somebody living with dementia and trying to bring people together. We do a thing in York called Christmas Presents, which has, um, which was a little idea me, me lad came up with when he was eight. I was at a dementia cafe in York talking to a bloke called Peter. And Peter was a good laugh like. And our bill... Uh, Said uh, to Peter, says, so what are you doing at Christmas, Peter? And he went, oh, well, um, my wife's died and my two sons, one has got a good job in France and the other one works in uh, computers in San Francisco. So it's just me, Doctor Who, and a male for one. And our bill went, well, that's, that's wrong, is that? So he came out and we went to the car with M, me, and our bill and our Annie. And he goes, so what are you going to do about that then, Dad? I went, what do you mean? 
Peter's by himself on Christmas Day. What are you going to do about it? I went, hold on, how is it my... What, how, when did it become my job to help out everybody? We could do it. We could help him out, couldn't we, Dad? We could have, he could have Christmas Day with us. He says, why not, even better, why don't we get a load of people, Dad, who otherwise would be al- alone on Christmas Day and give them a big family Christmas together? And then I looked at him and I went, that would be a lot of work, but it would be ace. And so we set up Christmas presents. I got on Twitter, I said, I've drawn this daft logo. Can somebody design it for now? I've got a budget of now. I'm doing this with a budget of now. I'm going to feed people with a budget of now. I'm going to blag stuff. And we did, and we started it um, 2015. I put a thing out on Facebook in York that said, wanted people to give up Christmas Day and work really hard for now. Now, a lot of the look-at-meers, as I would call them, look at me, look at me, I'm doing nice things. Look at me! Nowhere to be seen. Enter a load of people I've never met and now who I would take a bullet for. People who are incredible. I've got a couple called uh, David and Beverly Lonsdale in York. I am not joking you. I have never met people. Their their whole constitution, it's like, they're like hearts on legs. There's no I can't ask them to do that they won't do. They are the reason Christmas presents happens not me i have become a figurehead a mouth a blagger and i'm a good blagger but they are the detail they are the minutiae they are the everything and i've got this team of people now and they will run through brick walls for me and i was a total stranger you mentioned there in in that dementia as a team guy i want to come back to that but Mm. just going back to the loneliness thing and dragon's den Apologies, I can't remember. The, it's, it's the new dragon that's in there. Stephen Bartlett. He Stephen is Stephen Bartlett. So he was interviewing Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is a, he's a philosopher. He's well-respected, but he's he can be opinionated about certain things. Um, and, and he's grown in stature. You know, people are aware of him, his fame, etc. Right at the very start, um, Stephen said, before I do anything, I just want to ask, how are you? And he he became emotional and started crying. And he said, brilliant and terrible. And it was, you know, I think it is that, you know, just taking a moment to ask somebody, you know, how are you? Mm. You know, and engaging with people. But coming back to the dementia, you said it's a team game. Can you, can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, when I was a young lad, uh, me nana got dementia. Um, it wasn't called dementia then. Uh, my nana, there was another D, D word, uh, Nana's Dolali. She was Dolali, not dementia. And, you know, she struggled with loads of stuff. She'd been through a tough life. She'd had strokes. She'd had, a, she'd had a, you know, um, had a really tough life, really tough life. Her mum died when she was four. She had to bring up uh, two brothers and look after her dad. Um, so my mum... Look after me, me nana with dementia, and I could always talk to me nana. I spent loads of time with nana, and I could always tell when she was trying to go for summit, but would miss it. She'd talk about having a black forest grotto, right? She'd say, "Oh, that uh, you know, I watched that snooker player Doug Lovejoy." She'd always get things one up, and she'd always she'd be saying, "Oh, you know that film," and I would be <laughs> somehow. Everyone used to say, how can you just work out what your nana wants? How the, 
and she said, you know her, that little woman? I went, what, Margaret Rutherford? Margaret Rutherford. And everyone would say, how do you know what your nana's thinking? And I've used that little skill, that second guess, that seeing where I think somebody's aiming for, but then seeing where they miss. And that's been amazing with the people I speak to every day. Everyone says, you've got, you talk to old people and old women like they're women, like they're lasses. I went, because they're, they're lasses. Right. If you know, nobody thinks they're old, really. Right. And if you ask the question, at what age do you get old? Well, when we, we, saga holidays, by the way, saga holidays are for over 50s. Can you believe that? Who's going on a saga holiday at 50? Not me. But I had my nana, then my mother-in-law was diagnosed with young onset dementia in her 50s. And me, my wife was beyond phenomenal. Um, caring for a mum, like just incredible, but not unsinkable. Um, so we had that, and Liz passed away just before the pandemic, thankfully for everybody. Um, and then my dad at 80 had a stroke, and my dad has, would have been the cleverest bloke I've ever met. Now, but unfortunately, dementia's winning. He's 86. There's loads less of him, but he's left me with all the bits that I'm using every day. If you were to meet me dad years ago and see me in front of you now, you'd go, yeah, I think it's fair to say that's his dad. No paternity test required. I even move like him. So what we've done with the Dementia is a Team game, I meet amazing people who don't deserve the hand of cards that have been dealt. They've had their memories removed. Every day you get up to make amazing memories. That's all you do. That's basically the gig. What's, what's life? Life is getting up, making connections with people that make you feel great and storing all of those memories because that's your stockpot that makes you. And then to have them stolen. And then to have it so somebody doesn't know who you are. And then to lose your most, pre- you know, lose your favourite holidays. Lose everything that you've worked for. Lose the job that you used to do. Lose all those things. There ain't a courtroom in the world that would do that. And yet it happens to people every day. And so I think that those people who lose their voice need somebody to give them a voice. Now, there are some people in the dementia community, okay, who do that, but they don't give a representative voice. There are still people, you know, who are fantastic communicators, right, and they write books and all this sort of thing, but they're not representative of a lot of people who are living with dementia and are are caring for people with dementia. So we have to give a very real, a very real outlook of what it is. There's this saying, you know, you don't suffer from dementia, you live well with dementia, all this sort of thing. Well, I've seen people suffer with dementia. So I'm not going to sugarcoat things. I've seen people do a good job with it. I've seen people really struggle and really hate it. And so I think we have to have some reality, some truth, and we need to represent people. So I've made a lot of films with people who are living with dementia. And they've been used all over the world to help people and to educate people and to be used for nothing. There is nothing that I have ever made as a film that has to be subscribed for or paid for or bought or anything. They're out there. They're free to use. Do us a favour. They were my ideas in my pocket. Pickpocket me. Use them. And they're used in Australia, they're used in America, they're used in South Africa, they're used in Norway, they're used everywhere. And that is why 
you have good ideas because a good idea is no good in my pocket. And so everything, everything that I find out and everything I learn from talking to somebody who's living with dementia, I get out there. And that's why I wrote a book called Dear Dementia that's in every library um, that I was speaking at a conference, the National uh, Dementia Congress, and a guy called Richard Hawkins came up at the end. I did a 35-minute talk and he went, wow, if you can turn that into a book, I'll publish it tomorrow. And so I went, you are joking. He went, let's have a cup of tea. We had a cup of tea. A month later, after I'd written it, illustrated it, all that sort of thing, this little book, the same size as Mr. Man book, got published. Angela Rippon was at the launch. She's written the new forward to it. Um, and it's been sold in 24 countries. It's in every library. And it's been translated into Welsh. Because apparently Welsh speakers weren't being sort of helped in Wales. So somebody came up to me at the Home Cymru uh, conference and said at the end of my talk, how much would it cost to tran- uh, for us to translate and print your book uh, and get into libraries uh, in Wales? And I went, well, it'll cost you nout. I said, because that would be amazing. And so that's what I do. I, I meet lovely people who deserve better. And so I try with the people to sell. I try and celebrate the brilliant people that are out there changing lives. And I meet plenty people who are just incredible. Like in this, in, in the world of care, there's people like there's, there's a lady called Ros Heath. There's people like, um, Anita at Wren Hall, all these people. And they do, they do things differently. They do the same things differently. And they're not scared of a daft idea. Landermaids has a Rover 200 cut in half. It's the front half and it's bolted to a brick wall. You can get it up. You can clean it. You can change the tyres. You can get in the... So all the guys that used to be mechanics, I used to tamper with the cars. It's there in the garden. Now they could have had a lovely flower bed, but they haven't. They've cut a row of a 200 in half. And there you go. How cool is that? So some days they'll just go out and clean the car. Fantastic. It's all about ideas and people and connections. And we need to celebrate that because care now is collaborative. It used to be that it used to be the clever kid at school who covers their answers. And now care is all about collaboration and coming together and sharing good practice and sharing dreadful practice and holding the hands up when they get it wrong. Right? Holding the hands up when they get it wrong and then just sharing all of it. And that's what it is. Caring is sharing now. And it's changed in the last 10 years. People are more collaborative. And with things like Twitter, with things like LinkedIn, there is this real lovely supportive community. And I would say anybody with any interest in dementia care really needs to get onto Twitter, right? Just follow the people because their ideas are out there and the world's a small place now. Is that, I suppose that that was kind of my next question, which is if you take loneliness and dementia, um, something you're passionate about, um, you know, how can our listeners, you know, people out there, what, what can we do to help? Is it, you mentioned there about being engaged with Twitter, social media, LinkedIn, those kind of things. Something easier. Uh, you can't change the world. You can have an impact on your street. And the people who, you know, the, the person who lives down the street, 
don't let them be the little old woman with the with the Staffordshire Bull Terrier. Let her be Barbara. And then find out about Barbara. And find out if Barbara needs out. And like during I think the pandemic was was a thing. It was like going back in time to a simpler time. It reminded me a lot of growing up in Tawlaw. Like a you know, former mining village in the northeast. Um everybody knows everybody in Tawlaw. We've got about twelve hundred people. Everybody knows everybody. Kick one, they all limp. And that was what our street was like in York. So there, there was a guy up the street who had a motorbike and he was an older bloke, but he had a motorbike. And I got talking to him. Then he became George. And then he became George who I went in to see every day. And then it was George who I had a cup of tea with. And then it was George who had had a f- flying license from 1970. And that was George who nearly died in 1978 if he hadn't, you know, had a fluky landing. And that's George who cheated cancer four times. And that was George who then, you know, built something uh, for me house, a sign for me, me house. And then I bumped into Steve and Steve was a widow whose wife, um, I used to teach with and Steve got his potter's wheel out. Um, and we used to get him a curry on a Friday night and we would all this other. And then he made us a load of mugs that were bespoke to us. And, so, and it was community coming together. And I think just giving an eye to one another. When me dad got dementia in town law, me dad used to teach all of Weirdale. Right, my dad went to Walsingham School and he left when he was 18. He went to Sheffield for two years and then he came back to teach all his mates and he retired 40 years later. And when my dad got dementia and they realised he couldn't go around to the North Point, which was the, the pub that he, he used to go and have his dinner, he's, he's like teeing, they would get my dad's dinner every day walk across the road, round the back streets, tower house. My dad's door would always be open, always. Knock on, like, knock on the door, shout open the door. Hi, Charlie. They'd bring me dad's dinner on, like, a foil cloche, a bit of tin foil. They'd set up my dad's dinner table, and my dad would have his tea every night from there, and they, they, they basically just charged him. They said they know exactly what he wants every different day and all this. Other. They charged him just the same as if he'd gone to the pub, right? Um... The hairdressers, hairdressers, barber, right? Brian, who'd been the barber for years, um, thought, right, Charlie hasn't come for his haircut for ages. So he used to put a thing up in the window that said, gone to cut Charlie's hair, because everyone knew me dad. Gone to cut Charlie's hair. We'll be half an hour, hour if we get talking, right? And that's what he did. And that was community. And the next door neighbours, next door neighbours would have a key. They knew me dad was struggling. And what they'd do is, they check on a night. They say, right, you won't have locked the door. So they would just go out and lock his door. They'd do my dad's bins. Check that my dad's bins were all right. Check that everything was fine. And one thing I noticed when I went home recently, because my dad's now living in a home in, in the northeast. Our backyards, because we didn't have gardens, we two up, two down. And I'd never noticed this. They have low walls. They have walls at the height that you can lean on and talk, like Les Dawson used to do when they were dressed up as women with Roy Barraclough. And I suddenly realised that was my childhood. It was community. It was people talking to one another and listening to one another. And all I would say is, give an eye to the people that live around you and think of how much food you throw away. And would it hurt you if you're making a ginger cake or a chocolate cake to just get a 
a third of it and just say, wrap it up in four and say, try this, right? I've read this. Because I'll tell you what, nobody's going to say, no, I don't want to taste chocolate cake. And that's it. Little yeah. connections. And it just starts a conversation and it means that nobody's a stranger. And that's, and with the Christmas presents thing, during the, during, on 2020, we weren't allowed to do it. And I just put a thing out there and said, we can't do it. Too dangerous. Do me a favour. Sort out Christmas dinner for your next door neighbour. Right? All of you. Just do it. And that was amazing. Then the next year, 2021, we weren't allowed to do a big party as we normally do. So we went round individual homes and we did 80 people's homes on Christmas Day. And it was beyond words. It was beautiful. But we turned up and we got masked up and there was social distancing and all this sort of thing. It was amazing. So what I would say is you can either go on about be kind, be kind, or hashtag be kind, hashtag that. Do you know what? Stop talking about it. You know, do something about it. Yeah. Be about it. And it's not hard. And I tell you what, it's an addiction. If you start doing nice things, right, it's a really selfish thing. Everyone thinks, oh, he's a nice bloke. He does nice things. Rubbish. Right? I get a big kick out of it. I get a rush out of it like I can't tell you. I gave up drinking five years ago because I had to write some books and I needed to be like sharp as a tack all the time. It is an addiction. It's doing nice things. And it, you can be the most selfish bloke in the world and do nice things because you gain from it. You win. The people you help win. Everybody around you win. If somebody looks on and thinks, why is he doing that? Oh, I'll have a go at that myself. It's contagious and it is the best thing I, I think I love that line. I think uh, it's a great takeaway is, uh, you know, you, you said you can't change the world, but you can change your street. I yeah. think, you know, just look, you know, in your own community. Um, powerful stuff it genuinely is. So kind of something we ask everybody that, that comes on here is um, to share a moment. This can be something that's a little strange, a little weird, a bit of fun, something funny, a moment that you've had across all your experiences within healthcare, is there a, a moment that you can pick out that just took you by surprise a little bit? It was funny, it was strange, whatever. You can just share just one experience. Right. There was a, a guy called Ian in Nottingham. And he was a big guy in his 60s. And he had a thing called um, PSP. Um, and it's something super nuclear... Palsy. Basically, he, he lost the ability to communicate. So he's almost like trapped in there. And he was a lovely boy. He loved his Nottingham Forest. Loved his Nottingham Forest. And he really connected with me. So he couldn't talk. But every time he saw me, he would grab my hands and really, really shake my hand as if to say, we're all right now, me and you. Because he was, he was a big Ian and I was a big Ian. And he, we, he just kind of... There was a connection. It was a lovely thing. And I took him up in helicopter. I took him up with a helicopter. I got a load of them. Yeah. I, I, I asked a load of them. I said, what do you want to do? And they all said, I'd love to go up in helicopter. I said, I've got a mate who lives in Eskrig who's got helicopters. I'm going to ask the question. So I asked Steve a question. He says, I'll fly down to Nottingham. I'll sort that. And we'll take him up. And it was amazing. And then at the end, he just he just grabbed 
Steve's hand just shook and he just went, awesome, really quiet. Now Steve, and he died not, not long later, it was Christmas and I went down with a guitar to do some a Christmassy sing-along. And his daughter was there. She was about to go shopping in Nottingham. She said, oh, Ian. I said, oh, I'm so pleased you're here. She went, um, I found some things. And I got talking to my mum about um, about my dad. And they, they met at a, Paul, at a Paul Young concert. Right? I'm thinking, Paul Young, okay. And um, I was going to be singing Away in a Manger and Silent Night and all this sort of thing and Jingle Bells. And I just went, I know wherever I lay my hat as a song and I know every time you go away, but I don't know it on guitar. So I went, right, down the corridor out the way. So I'm playing, so I'm, you know, I'm thinking, right, well, that's a G. I think that's an E minor, G, and then a D, and then it goes to a C, and that's it. That's, that's, that's wherever I lay my hat. And I thought, oh, how does every time you go away? So I did. So anyway, I went back and... I started singing, and he hadn't said anything for ages. Now, if there's any way with this podcast, you can add some extra bit. I can give you the footage that shows this moment. And so we started singing every time you go away. And he started joining in really quietly. And at the end, he does this bit. He goes, in this croaky voice, goes, every time you go away. You take a piece of me. And he grabbed his own shirt with you. Oh. And and then his daughter came in from the side, because we videoed this thing. She came in from the side in absolute bits and was just so excited. She went, I can't believe that. I can't believe it. And honestly, I just could have gone. I could have gone. It was amazing. It showed that music can cut through the fog. And it's not about music. It's about one person's music. And you can't tell by looking at somebody what songs are going to ignite them. And that was the most beautiful, beautiful, moving thing. And I'll take that to the grave. I actually then, I officiated Ian's funeral. I did it all. So the family just said, we want you to do it. I think I, I get given some real strange phone calls, me. You know, really, it's not, you know, oh, by the way, can you just do me dad's uh, funeral? Oh, go on, Ian. And so there you go. That was amazing. It blew me socks off and it showed me the power of music and the power of people's history. Yeah. And even though, even though you think somebody's locked out, they can maybe just still have a, a foot in the door. Yeah, no, that that's powerful. <laughs> I love that story. Yeah, I'd love to see the footage. I'll show you. Thanks for joining us this week, Ian, and thanks to you all for listening. Next week, we're going to hear a bit more from Ian um, and his most recent project, A Pocket Full of Kindness. Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions for our guests, uh, please email whatthehealthtech at radarhealthcare.com. Ian, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.